Right, we should be recording now. Uh, my name is Tim, I'm an alcoholic. Very glad to be here. Thank you to everyone for being here. Um, I don't speak on behalf of, of AA. Uh, this isn't an official AA meeting. I'm also an Al-Anon member, uh, but I don't speak on behalf of Al-Anon. Um, if anything I say is useful, wonderful. If it's not useful, don't worry about it. You don't need to tell me. Uh, now, the topic, topic tonight is about how to rely on God. Uh, funnily enough, there's going to be surprisingly little talk about God because most of the job of relying on God has got to do with uh, uh, what I do in the material world. There's nothing fancy, nothing esoteric. But before we get to that, before we get to that, uh, we've got the question of why we're even talking about God in the first place. Uh, there are going to be lots of big book quotations. So uh, fasten your seatbelts for those. I'll be calling page numbers. <laughs> be a bit like bingo. Uh, but no one shout house all the way through. Um, we don't need that. So page 24. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. So this key feature of my alcoholism is that I started having horrible, horrible consequences from, from the late, uh, late 80s. And it got very bad in 1989 when I was living in Germany. Um, I mentioned that because I was I, I would have been underage in the UK, uh, but I was of age when it came to alcohol in Germany. Uh, I started having bad consequences, but uh, most of the time it didn't occur to me to not drink. When it did occur to me to not drink, I couldn't. Uh, all that occurred to me was this beautiful warm glow around the notion of having a drink. So th this is the key idea about alcoholism. Uh, there's nothing we can do about the physical craving that kicks in after the first drink. Our real problem, as it says, bottom of 23, top of 24, is the fact that, well, certainly if, if you're like me and you're not like an alcoholic in the big book, uh, the physical craving doesn't get triggered unless I have the first drink. Who takes the first drink? I do. I am the problem. It's not the alcohol. I am the problem, specifically my inability to uh, retain a sufficient and balanced view of alcohol to stay away from it. I'm not stupid in other areas. So it's not stupidity. I'm not mad universally. So it's not madness. It's something else. What is it? Alcoholism. There we go. So if you want a definition of alcoholism, it's got nothing to do with images you're familiar with on the television or <laughs> stars in court cases. Nothing to do with that. It's got to do with the simple fact of being unable to stay away from the first drink despite the experience of consequences. Page 11, his human will had failed. I summoned an immense will to stop drinking forever. It, ooh, in just after New Year, 1993, I'd had uh, uh, something of an episode in the National Gallery in London, which is not somewhere you want to have an episode. And in the middle of the Munch exhibition, which was on at the time, if you please, 
But in any case, I had this episode. I said, I'm right. I don't like the fact I'm going to have to give up drinking forever, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm absolutely going to do it. I managed for about two weeks, then I was off again. My human will had failed. Page 37, our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. Uh, I remember in about March, April, 1993, I was now living in Russia, don't ask. And I traveled, I was in AA at this point, and I traveled all the way from St. Petersburg to Moscow, um, which is a, a long journey. Uh, to stay with some friends in Moscow in order to to go to an AA meeting. There were some AA meetings in St. Petersburg. They were all in Russian. I spoke Russian, that's fine, but they were terrible. By any measure, they were terrible. So I thought, if there's an English-speaking meeting in Moscow, maybe I'll try that. So I get to Moscow. I turn up at this address, and... uh, I go to go into the meeting, but there's no one there. There's an old woman, old babushka, sweeping. And I, I said, yeah, I asked her in Russian, you know, where, where are they? Are they? Have you seen any Americans meeting here once a week? She said, last saw them three months ago. They'd not been back. And that was the end of that. No meeting, disappeared. No, before the internet, no way of tracing where they were. I thought, well, I've done so well to even get this far. I think I deserve a drink. I'm going to have a little drinky. And the little drinky turned into being in blackout on the circle line of the Moscow uh, subway uh, and forgetting where I was staying. And miraculously, I found my way back in, in blackout. I don't know how. My sound reasoning failed to hold me in check, page 37. It's almost looking as though I'm identifying with what it says in the book. Um, Page 45, our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. August 1993, I'm, ooh, three weeks sober. No higher power to speak of, rather dismissive and contemptuous of the notion of God. I was treating uh, AA canteen style, take what you want and leave the rest. Trouble is, I was doing the picking. (laughs) I was the one that couldn't remember not to drink. And then I was doing the picking about what I was going to take and what I was going to leave. Bad move. My human, so human resources, the human resources of me and the human beings around me. I was going to a billion meetings a day. I was making a billion phone calls. I was constantly talking to other members of AA, witter, 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 chitter, chatter, chitter, chatter, the whole time. And I got to 11 o'clock, 10 10 to 11, 10 to 11 one night. And um, I was at home. I'd spent the whole day trying to do, I'd been at work, but I'd spent the rest of the time doing AA things. I was apparently doing everything right. But I thought, I feel like I'm going to have a drink. I feel like there's nothing I can do to stop it. There was no one else to call. The last few phone calls, I knew exactly what they were going to say before they said it. The magic had worn off. So there was no point in calling anyone else. What are they going to do? They can't do anything. They can't stop my head. I know I'm going to drink. Uh, 
Now, I didn't drink, but we'll come to why in a little bit. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. So the, hot, the, the, the massed forces of AA with me, but with me without a higher power, without a personal relationship with a higher power, I was on the verge of drinking for the umpteenth time. Going to meetings and being surrounded by nice people who say the right things does not stop me from drinking, might stop you, doesn't stop me. If that's enough for you, my hat is off to you. <laughs> go, go and do that. <laughs> if you stay on the call, maybe you're like me. Um, page 26, Roland Hazard, who was, as it were, Bill W.'s grand sponsor. He, Roland, had consulted the best known American psychiatrists. Then he had gone to Europe. We call this taking a step up. Then he had gone to Europe, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist, Dr. Jung, not Adler, not Freud, but Jung, who prescribed for him. Though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with unusual confidence. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. This is why I don't hold much, set much store in terms of sobriety with any, all the medical stuff, all the psychiatric stuff, maybe that's necessary on the journey, who knows, I don't care. Point is, it doesn't solve the fundamental problem. Because the fundamental problem is that part of my mind will always want to drink. And if I do what I want to do, I am going to drink. And no amount of self-knowledge is gonna sort that out. Fascinating character. His mental life is fine. His physical life is fine, and yet he drinks. Uh, Fred, pages 39 to 43, splendid personality, perfectly successful. He's got his external life sorted out. Roland Hazen's internal life was fine. Uh, Fred's external life was fine. They got drunk. The answer is not understanding my childhood. That's not what this is about. If you want to go and do that, you know, be my guest, but it's got nothing to do with the solution here. It doesn't work against alcoholism. It might work against other things, but it doesn't work against alcoholism of my type. Page 27. By, by the time we get to page 27, Jung has said, oh, by the way, there are some exceptions in history. There are these people that have vital spiritual experiences. And they have these massive internal rearrangements, a psychic change that gets talked about in the doctor's opinion. And Roland is cheered by this. But then the doctor carries on, page 27. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in his case, they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. So... Uh, getting my mind sorted out will not help. Getting my body sorted out will not help. Getting my life, my circumstances sorted out will not help. Getting my shit together won't help. Getting my, they say in AA, yeah, get your marbles back. That won't help either. <laughs> because there's a one of the marbles is problematical. <laughs> but you don't know which one. 
So let's not put the marbles in charge. The marbles are your problem. Um, the last thing you want is your marbles back when it comes to um, alcohol. T have someone take your marbles away from you, namely the higher power. Uh, religion won't help. You see, this is the funny thing. This is going to be about how to rely on God. And I'm going to say religion doesn't help. So it's something to do with God, but not religion. Now, none of those other things are bad things, you know, getting your mind sorted out, getting your body sorted out, getting your circumstances sorted out, joining a religion, practicing a religion, becoming the archbishop of wherever, the bishop of Bath and Wells. These are not bad things, but they're not the solution to alcoholism. There are treatment centers for priests. There are psychiatrists in AA. <laughs> there are psychoanalysts in AA. Boy, are there psychotherapists in AA and Al-Anon. You go to an Al-Anon meeting, you say psychotherapist, everyone's hands go up. Um, it's, it's amazing. Uh, uh, thank God we let everyone in. Uh, so what is the solution then? Um, Dr. Bob had a spiritual life before he got to AA. Isn't that funny? He had a spiritual life, but... It didn't solve his alcoholism. So a spiritual life in the ordinary sense of, you know, having a lovely, cozy relationship with God. Ooh, that's not that's not that's not it. Because Bob had that, but he kept relapsing. Let's see what made the difference. Page one, five, five. This is about Bob. Some time later, and just as he thought he was getting control of his liquor situation, he <laughs> talk about downplaying and not alcoholism, his liquor. He went on a roaring bender. For him, this was the spree that ended all sprees. He saw that he would have to face his problems squarely, that God might give him mastery. One morning, he took the bull by the horns and set out to tell those he feared what his trouble had been. He's going to make amends. He makes amends. He found himself surprisingly well received and learned that many knew of his drinking. Well, I bet that was a surprise. <laughs> um, it's not. I mean, he was a proctologist whose hand shook. People knew about his drinking. Um, stepping into his car, he made the rounds of people he had hurt. He trembled as he went about, for this might mean ruin, particularly to a person in his line of business. At midnight, he came home exhausted, but very happy. He has not had a drink since. This was written in 1939. He never did drink again. If you want a relationship with God, make amends to everyone. There you go. See, that's not so nice. This is not as nice a little prayer bowl, little cushion, all the candles, all the tarot cards, trip to Nepal twice a year, your special spiritual retreat in Bali or Thailand. People never go to Bogna Regis for their spiritual retreats. It's always something pretty, isn't it? Make your amends. <laughs> That'll do it. And there are some other things too. Uh, and very interesting as well. Uh, yeah, prayer and meditation, prayer. Page 157. Um, we're on to Alcoholic Anonymous number three. 
He interrupted, I used to be strong for the church, but that won't fix it. I've prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn that I'd never touch another drop. But by nine o'clock, I'd be boiled as an owl. Apparently, that means like big, wide open, starey, glassy eyes with, with uh, you know, pupils different sizes, that kind of thing. So, so he was, a, again, strong religious man who prayed. He had a relationship with God, but it was the foxhole prayer. And we're going to be looking at something more than that and different than that. Now, there is a little block, page 47. Besides a seeming inability to accept much on faith, we often found ourselves handicapped by obstinacy, sensitiveness, and unreasoning prejudice. Many of us have been so touchy that even casual reference to spiritual things had made us bristle with antagonism. So, I, don't, I mean, I was like this. I was such a crashing bore when it, someone mentioned God, I'd start squawking about this and squawking about that. Um, and I'm sure maybe you've been that, maybe you sponsored that situation. It's tiresome. Uh, this sort of thinking had to be abandoned. Well, that's a bit rough. <laughs> you mean I have to stop doing that? Okay. Though some of us resisted, we found no great difficulty in casting aside such feelings. Well, that's funny because I was very attached to being a, a rather sort of militant atheist. Um, though some of us resisted, we found no great difficulty in casting aside such feelings. Faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. In this respect, alcohol was a great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. Sometimes this was a tedious process. We hope no one else will be as tedious for everyone. Uh, we hope no one else will be prejudiced for as long as some of us were. So the point is, I mean, I have very well rehearsed. I, you know, I'd read my Bertrand Russell. I wasn't entirely ignorant, but I'd only read one side of the argument. I'd read all of the arguments for why religion was a load of bollocks, but I hadn't, um, I, I had no religious background or training. No, I didn't know anything, hadn't read anything, hadn't talked to anyone, just sort of sat in my room angry constructing sort of gossamer thin arguments out, out of Camus and, and Bertrand Russell, um, thinking I was very sophisticated because I was referring to a Frenchman. That doesn't make you sophisticated, by the way. <laughs> Just because you can quote a French author in French doesn't mean your argument is sophisticated. You might be, but it doesn't mean your argument is sophisticated. So I was almost entirely ignorant. I was entirely ignorant of the many smart people over history who are smart and effective, who did have a higher power of some description in all different cultures. I'd only listen to one side of the argument with smart and effective people who don't believe in God. My other half doesn't believe in God and is contemptuous of the whole, of the whole thing. We don't have a bone of contention between us. But the point is, with all of my objections and my, um, I, I just dismissed, I didn't even engage with the God thing. I just dismissed it thinking, well, that's for the silly little people with no brains. 
That's what that's who that's for. But back to 10 to 11, when I'd exhausted all human options, I was desperate, absolutely desperate. So I thought I'm going to drink. And if I drink, I don't know if I'm ever going to stop. The last time I drank, I got run over. I got arrested. I could die if I drank and I knew I was going to drink. Something in me cried out. And I was staying with, staying with my old sister. She died now, poor old thing. But I was staying with her. She's, she was religious. Uh, and I, something inside me cried out. And I saw a Bible in the room. And I can't remember the last time I'd opened a Bible. Um, I opened it and I thought, right, let's see what this has got to offer. So I wasn't even approaching it with a, it was, oh, let me turn to the Lord on high. No, I was like, let's see what this has to offer. So I wasn't even approaching it with a, with a decent frame of mind. And my mind had been chattering all day about whether am I going to drink? Am I not going to drink? Am I going to drink? Am I not going to drink? You know the deal, just dull. Round and round and round and round and round. And I opened it and the first line I read I kid you not, was be still and know that I am God. And my head stopped. And I thought, I better go to sleep now before it starts again. And I went to sleep and I got up the next morning and I had two thoughts, just two, two thoughts the next morning. Thought the first, uh, I'm really glad I didn't drink last night. Thought the second, damn, I need never drink again. Because all I need to do is contact that which contacted me. And all my excuse, I was out of excuses. Once it's worked once, you're sunk, absolutely sunk. And I had proof now that there was a power beyond my own reason plus marshaled willpower, wit and wherewithal. There was something in the universe, number one, there was something in the universe beyond my wit and wherewithal, beyond and higher than, that could pull rank on my wit and wherewithal. Secondly, I could have a relationship with it. It wasn't distant, it was proximate. Uh, as I say, I was, I was sunk at this, but I've remained sunk. I can't contend. And I've had this experience with so many problems in my life. I can't contend there is no power greater than myself. Uh, now, I can tell you, if you've got a problem with the notion of God or whatever, uh, you, can, you can set it aside very easily because the God that you have a problem with is almost certainly the God that someone else has described. Whatever anyone else has described you disagree with, just disagree with it. You disagree with enough things already, disagree with that. You don't sort of hold it to your chest and clutch it to yourself and run around with it and say, well, this is the I, this is the God I don't believe. If you don't believe in it, fine. But if you disbelieve 
and disprove a hundred conceptions of God, that does not prove that God doesn't exist. It just proves those conceptions are inadequate. And it is impossible to exhaustively disprove all conceptions of God because they are frankly infinite. For as many people as there are, there's going to be conceptions of God out there. So trying to you know, work out what God is by, you know, one by one eliminating all of the conceptions of God that God isn't, you're on a hiding to nothing because you've got to, you, you're going to have to talk to thousands of people to do that. They just, just don't worry about that. Um, and religion, you don't need to worry about and, and so on. Um, and here's something very simple, a very simple way of looking at things. Uh, I had a problem I couldn't solve, alcoholism. I also had other problems. Let's say fear, depression. Did knowledge and willpower fix those? No. Good. We've now agreed we have a problem that we can't fix. Then I start to ask questions like this. Is there information in the universe that I don't have? Yes, there's lots of information in the universe I don't have. Good. So we've established that there is information. I don't have all the information in the universe. Good. Have you ever been encouraged by someone? Have you ever been in a situation where you couldn't do something, someone encourages you, and then you can do it? Everyone has had that experience a gazillion times where power flows from outside of you to inside of you, enabling you to do stuff you couldn't do. The two commodities that come down from the higher power are information and power, direction and power, knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out, step 12. The only way to contend that that's not available is to say, there is no force in the universe that has ever and can ever help me. There is no information outside of my own brain. You can't really contend those. It's very, very easy to see how, for instance, simply going to a meeting and finding yourself able to stay sober another day when you were convinced you could not stay sober another day, trying to get your own head out of your own behind all day by thinking about it and even taking the right actions and you call someone, you call Sally, you call Bobby, you go to a terrible meeting where people talk rubbish and then you suddenly feel better. That the evidence that there are channels for power to flow from the outside to the inside, you've got to be pretty, pretty bloody minded to deny both of those. So we know that a power greater than us exists and that from that power flows information and actual power that you can use. One needn't know what the power is or anything about it. One simply needs to be able to activate the mechanism. Uh, and there's daily activation of the mechanism, but there's preparing ourselves for that mechanism to be activated. That's the main thing. It's like physics and boiling a kettle. You don't need to understand. You don't need to know anything about the power station. You don't need to know anything about physics or power engineering or uranium depletion or any of those things to boil a kettle. All you need to do, all you need to know is where the switch is. And there's a bunch of switches that are in the big book. That's where they hit them. 
how to establish that relationship with God. Now, I did this little foxhole prayer in August 1993. I had to follow that, that up with a whole load of action. There are seven areas of the book where it says, if you do this, you're going to drink again. If you don't do this, you're going to drink again. So there are seven conditions to be met to establish a relationship with God. First one, resentment. Page 67. But with the alcoholic, whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when harboring such feeling, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. The insanity precedes the drinking. And with us to drink is to die because we don't know if we're ever going to come back. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. Uh, the grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal people, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. So if I want a relationship with God, I've got to forgive everyone for everything, not run around meetings brandishing my resentments like scouts badges. Oh, I got a resentment today. No, no, you want to get rid of it. It's going to kill you. It's not, it's not something to be proud of. It's not, it's not a hobby. <laughs> Sometimes it's treated like, oh, well, you know, I've got seven resentments today. Ha, 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 ha. This is grave. This is potentially fatal. Yet what spiritual Paul used to say, we used to call him a spiritual Paul because it was spiritual. Um, these AA nicknames can be very, very straightforward sometimes. He said, you want to drop it like it's hot. You want to drop it like it's hot because it's going to kill you. Harmful conduct. Number two, page 70. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we'll, we will be forgiven and will have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. So any behavior which is harming others is going to block me from the higher power. So first block comes from resentment. Second block to the higher power comes from harmful conduct. What we're going to see with these seven blocks is I don't need to look for God. I don't need to find God. I need to remove the blocks and poof, God shows up. So I don't need to read books about God. I need to stop. I need to pay, pay my taxes. How about that? I need to stop fiddling my taxes with complex legal mechanisms so that the next chap plays, pay, pays a little bit more in their taxes so I can pay a little bit less. These thousand little ways in which I diddle the universe thinking I'm one up and the whole time I'm separating myself from the higher power. Secrets, page 71, this is the third death threat. Uh, this is for doing step five, the best reason first, 71. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. Time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives. Trying to avoid this humbling experience, they have turned to easier methods. Almost invariably, they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. We think the reason is that they never completed their housekeeping. They took inventory all, all right, but hung on to some of the worst items in stock. So this is not about complex self-analysis. It's about telling the truth to another human being and looking them in the eye and say, this is what I did. How about that? <laughs> and most of, the, most of them are not even listening. They say, oh, okay, well, I did that too. You did what? You know what I mean? 
it, it's whatever you've done, someone else has done it. I mean, there's some, you know, scary stuff that you hear, but there is always someone who's done it. Fourth one, unmade amends. Page 77, we will ne never get over drinking until we've done our utmost to straighten out the past. Utmost. The, the, the most underrated word in the steps is, is uh, well, it's, it's in eight and nine uh, by implication. Uh, all people we had harmed, all people we had harmed. So including the exes, including the people that have harmed us. So if I've harmed Bobby and Bobby's harmed me, that does not let me off the hook. What if Bobby started it? That does not let me off the hook. What if Bobby harmed me eight times more than I harmed him? Doesn't let me off the hook. What if they're in another country? What if it was 30 years ago? Um, none of these things matter. Have I done my utmost? Uh, and not just a cursory, you know, big ticket numbers, everything, every little theft, every little ruptured relationship needs to be looked at. Not everything can be fixed, but things can be resolved in peace. The difference between having one unfinished amend and no unfinished amends is not to be underestimated. If you've got a balloon which is attached to the ground with a thousand pieces of string and you cut 999, you still have one piece of string, the balloon is still attached to the ground. Whilst there is anyone I have not done my utmost to make amends to, the ego has grounds for saying, I know what you really are and is gonna keep me from God because my ego is scared, I'm gonna go back to God. Because if I go back to God, I don't need the ego to protect me anymore. I don't need the ego to give me an identity and a purpose and a value in the world. So it, the last thing it wants me to do is to go back to God. What is the best way to keep me from going back to God, to keep me frightened of God, to keep me frightened of punishment for what I have done or what I think I've done? That's why I have to make every single last amend. So there is, when, when the ego comes to me saying, you don't want to go back to God, God's going to get you. I can say, no, he isn't because to get. Whilst there is one outstanding amend, that line won't work. Because it knows, your ego knows what you're holding behind your back. Unfaced creditors, we must lose our fear of creditors no matter how far we have to go. If we are liable to drink, if we're afraid to face them. I had an employer where uh, they screwed me for X pounds. I screwed them back for a fraction of the X pounds. I did not stop being frightened of a certain part of London until I paid back the amount I owed them, even though to my mind, they owed me 10 times more on a different matter, unrelated matters. I had to face them. When I faced them, my whole feeling about the city I live in changed. Everything is connected. Complacency, page 85. It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We're headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We're not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Uh, every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. So the maintenance of spiritual condition 
when you when you see them in the book talking about what getting spiritual means well i'm going to say it, you're going to see it in the next two quotations but on the subject of complacency i don't graduate from aa i don't do any less now in aa than i ever have in fact i probably do more why because when i say to god what do you want me to do today God keeps saying, apparently, well, go to this meeting, go to that meeting. When this person asks you to sponsor them, if the conditions are met, you say yes. Then you end up spending hours a day sponsoring people, going to a shed load of meetings. I'm, I'm not choosing any of this. Because I've taken step three. I chose to take step three. And step three means you have no choice anymore. You, you listen to, you, know, if you call the boss and you, you wait for instructions. Uh complacency is really saying well i'm not going to bother with that i'm going to plow my own furrow i'm i'll only do as much aa as i think i need to do to get by to be complacent is to be back in the steering wheel to, is, is is to is to kick god actually the steering wheel's a bad analogy is to turn off the satellite navigation system and to drive wherever the hell i want that's what complacency looks like and working with others. Now, people who know the book very well will know what is coming. Uh, people that know me will know what is coming. Page 14. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual through, yet think enlarging his spiritual life would be prayer, meditation, contemplation, talking to the nuns of Haggerston, talking to, you know, something, something fancy, something with italic handwriting, something fluffy, something pink and purple. And it's not, uh, or is it? Enlarge, perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. Damn, I thought it was gonna be cozy. It's not, it's hard work. That's how you have a relationship with God. You put yourself to work for God rather than putting yourself to work for self. Um, for he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. And if he drank, he would surely die. So again, this is, this is because I want to stay sober. I want to have a life. How? I've got to work for God. Um, page 156. In case you thought that quotation on page 14 was some anomaly that slipped through the editing process... <laughs> Yeah, it can happen. There are a couple of dud lines in the book. There's a dud line in the doctor's opinion. We'll talk about that another day, perhaps. But there's a dud line in that. Uh, but page 156. Life was not easy for the two friends. It reads like a children's book. It's wonderful. But life was not easy for the two friends. Plenty of difficulties presented themselves. Both saw that they must keep spiritually active. What is going to happen next? Prayer circle? Reading the Bible? No. One day they called up the head nurse of a local hospital. They explained their need and inquired if she had a first class alcoholic prospect. No prayer wheel here. Now, of course, they were praying. This is powered by step 11, but step 11 is not the end. It is the means by which we prepare ourselves for the business, which is helping others. So it's those seven areas which establish the relationship with God, clearing resentment through the activity of forgiveness. 
It says, not something which comes to me in God's time. I always love the in God's time thing. Oh, I'm going to make that amend in God's time. Um, I'll tell you a story about, uh, I love a story. You can tell you a story about uh, in God's time. Um, Rabbi takes a coat to be mended to a tailor. And uh, he says to the tailor, when will the coat be ready? And the tailor says, God willing, it will be ready tomorrow. He turns up tomorrow, coat's still not ready. Rabbi says to him, um, when will the coat be read, ready? The tailor says, God willing, uh, the coat will be ready tomorrow. Of course, he doesn't do it. Next day, Rabbi shows up for a third time, says, when is the coat going to be ready? Tailor says, God willing, uh, it will be ready tomorrow. And the rabbi says, and if we leave God out of it, when will it be ready then? Um, bloke walking past a monastery garden wants to ingratiate himself with the monk who's tending this garden. Um, he says to the monk, isn't this, isn't this a wonderful testament to the gl glory of God's creativity? And the monk says, yes, that's certainly the case. But you should have seen it when he had it to himself. Um, the responsibility is with me. God will do for me what I can't do for myself. God won't do for me what I can do for myself. It's my job to get rid of my resentment. Doesn't mean I stop being human. It, stop, it means I stop with the attack thoughts up there. The, the attack thoughts as a hobby, which proceeds in real time in my brain. Attack thoughts against me or attack thoughts against you or the system. I love it. We have resentment against the system, the government. <laughs> Oh, there are lots of groupies, very vague groupings. People get whatever the attack thought is, doesn't matter whether it's vague, whether it's real, whether it's fancied, whether it's something you read about, where you, you watched on YouTube, whether it's something that actually happened to you. Doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what the focus is. I've got to take responsibility for getting rid of resentment, stopping harmful conduct, telling all the secrets, making the amends, facing the creditors being strict with myself, re-complacency, and then working with others. Uh, the actual relationship itself, um, Bill's story is particularly good for this, but there are a couple of other points in the book which I, I like very much as well. Page 13, there I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. If you like an image, a really helpful image I think for this is a light bulb in a string of fairy lights. If the light bulb is sitting on the sideboard, it won't do anything. It has to be screwed into the string of fairy lights to light up. Trying to achieve happiness in the world by any means other than complete surrender to and connection with God in order to do God's will, not my own, is like being a light bulb trying to light itself up by sheer force of the will without being plugged into anything. I'm not meant to operate on my own. I'm not meant to be a separate being. It's an optical illusion created by the physical body. It's never going to, it cannot work. The desire, is, it, by design, it cannot work. 
Page 13, I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. You don't need to join a monastery. I remember in, I see a couple of people from Bristol. I don't know if you know Phoebe. Phoebe was 22 years sober, drank again, and then she was sober for another few decades. Wonder, I, she, I don't know if she's still alive. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. She said when she first encountered step three, she heard the gates of the nunnery clanking shut behind her. And I thought that was a wonderful image. Now, we don't have to join a monastery. We don't have to join a nunnery. Uh, I don't have to stop doing the things I do in the world. I have what looks like a job. I have what looks like a home. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a sort of introvert, so I'm not exactly a party person, just in case any of you are getting any bright ideas. I'm not, I, I like to be quiet, but I know plenty of people that live very uh, vivid, lively lives, jumping around all over the place, going to all sorts of places, doing all sorts of things, but powered by and connected with God, and it's fine. It's not about what I'm doing. It's about the spirit in which I'm doing it. And specifically, um, uh, I know in, in, I think it's in St. Paul, something about the body being a temple. Uh, well, my temple has been desecrated for years in all sorts of, of lurid ways, so we won't go there. But the point, the point is my mind. My mind is the, you see, I was promiscuous in my mind, and I don't mean sexually. I'd let any old thought in there. Watch any old rubbish on the television, any old rubbish on YouTube, listen to any old person sitting next to me, and it would all go in. And I seem to have no power to stop complete rubbish going into my mind. I'm extremely careful about what I let in, and I'm extremely prompt about what I kick out. This isn't about joining a monastery. It's about creating my own space where it's me and the higher power, and I don't allow any of that other crap in my mind. There's a lot of crap out there. I, I don't want any of that running around. My, it's, it's bad enough it's running around other people's minds. It does not need to run around mine. I'm supposed to ask God what to think, not just to think on my own in a vacuum. I'm supposed to say, God, what do you, how should I look at this? And it's amazing. I'm presented with a tricky situation. God, how should I look at this? The other day, my, my mother is 2,000 years old or, or so. She's over 90 anyway. And she lives in an old people's home. And we got yet when you, when you have a mother or an elderly relative that lives in an old people's home, you're going to get calls which start with uh, things like, um, uh, I'm really sorry to say that. And then, you know, in this case, it was my mother had been taken very unwell, an ambulance had been called. And I thought, right, I'm not going to put up with any bullshit from my ego about this. I'm not, I, I want to catch this before fear arises. I'm going to catch this before any narratives start. I don't want any of that, any of that crap. Spent too many years thinking rubbish thoughts then complaining, I'm full of rubbish feelings. Well, that's because I filled my head with rubbish thoughts. 
So the first thing I did was, right, God, how do I look at this? Show me how to look at this. And pretty clear, go and do what needs to be done. Take a charger with you in your bag so your phone doesn't run out of juice if you're in the hospital overnight. So I got a couple of things uh, in my bag, got ready, went over. We spent the day in hospital. She seems to be on the mend now. So um, uh, we'll see what's happening with that. But I don't need to turn a drama into a crisis if I go to God first, rather than running around like a crazed maniac and then only going to God three days later or 15 years later, you know, having caused all sorts of <laughs> carnage. Go to God for the only thing I'm better. I'm not being sober a long time. doesn't mean you're better. It just means you've been at it longer and there's a chance you'll do the right thing sooner rather than later. There's a chance you'll do the right thing sooner or later, but just, just out of sheer uh, uh, pain, the memory of the, you see the difference today with a relationship with a higher power, the memory of the pain is now vivid enough to make me to go to God straight away rather than waiting. Do not pass go. Do not collect 200 pounds. Go straight to God. Turn off Ego 101 FM. Stop it. <laughs> and I say there's a Bob Newhart sketch. Stop it. If you go to, if you go to YouTube and put, pop in Bob Newhart, stop it. It's an amazing sketch. I won't spoil it if you're not familiar with it. Someone, someone explain to the kids who Bob Newhart is. So if you hang around later, then ask one of the grown-ups and they'll tell you. But it's I don't need to analyze the ego thoughts. I just need to recognize, oh, it's my ego speaking, therefore it's rubbish. Go straight to God. A couple more quotations and I'm done. Page 100. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. What this means is, it's so wonderful, I don't need to plan. A planning mind is a mind that doesn't trust God. Now, it doesn't mean, so I don't take the occasional precaution. I take some precautions in my life. I don't plan the overall course of my life. I don't work out where I'm going to be in five years' time. I don't care. I'll be with God, wherever that is. Um, I, I had a situation a few years ago uh, where, and this is for the Al-Anons, I booked a holiday with an alcoholic. And the alcoholic had a liquor, the sherbet, um, and he started drinking again. I was saying to my sponsor, oh, I don't know whether to cancel or I don't know whether to go or go on my own or not go. I don't know what to do. He said, it doesn't matter because you'll have God with you either way. So it doesn't matter. And that's the answer with a lot of things. It doesn't matter. Um, I'm happier in my life and I have any business being given my history and given my family. Uh, I couldn't have orchestrated any of this. Um, and the part where I've ended up in my um, 
in my life. I don't think you could plan it if you tried. I mean, just one, just one tiny thing that I did. I remember thinking a few months ago, I was, I'm a translator and I was translating a Macedonian pharmaceutical document. And I had one of those moments when you think, this is very strange, because this is what I'm doing for a living. I don't have a medical degree. I don't have a pharmaceutical degree. I've never attended a class on Macedonian, yet here I am translating a pharmaceutical document from Macedonian into English, and the client was thrilled. Um, I wouldn't have known to plan that and if I tried to plan it, I would have, I would have tried a different path. I would, the path that I've been on ha, equip, has equipped me to be able to do that. But nothing in that path looked as though it was going to head in that direction. Everything, everything in my life is like that. So I don't care. I, just, I, don't, I don't have a care in the world. When I do, I'm being silly, that's all. And my other half treats me like a child when I'm being silly about things. He says, you're brave and strong, and he won't have any, any of it. He won't indulge it for one moment because I've got higher power on my side. Spiritual Paul used to say, um, <laughs> he said, people, they worry about, they don't know what's around the corner. Can't know what's around the corner. Me, I have powers around the corner, so I'm going to be all right. You want to be blessed, not stressed. you got a higher power 24 hours a day. What's the problem? Talk to them. Don't listen to the ego. My ego is not my amigo. Talk to God. <laughs> there we go. Tell him what's going on. And don't try and wangle inside info out of God. That will not work. You'll get a slap. You'll get put on the naughty step if you do that. A friend of mine took magic mushrooms to lift, lift the curtain and have a special relationship with God. Where, 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 <laughs> uh, time will tell where that one goes. I don't know. I don't know. It's not for me, any of that crap. Because you see, the thing is, my job is to work out what to do today. And how do I know what to do? I do the things other people ask me to do. They say, can you do this? Can you do that? So I do that. I don't need magic mushrooms to know to say yes when people make a request. I don't think magic mushrooms would help with that or ayahuasca or anything else. A relationship with God is simple and practical and straightforward. When my other half comes home from work and he's in a bad mood, I don't need special meditation techniques to figure I better keep out of his way, make the dinner, keep my mouth shut, make it clear I'm available, but don't intrude. It's common sense. It's common sense. Uh, last quotation, uh, page 130. Those of us who have spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe have eventually seen the childishness of it. This dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose, accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. We have come to believe he would like us 
to do two things. Number one, keep our heads in the clouds with him. Number two, but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. You see, I had my head in, head in the gutter and my legs in the air. Wrong way round. You want your head up in the clouds with God, feet on the ground. And it says that is where our fellow travellers are and that is where our work must be, must be done. So I think my job is to have good relationships with other people where I'm helpful and tolerant. And when I do that, I seem to have a relationship with God. No relationships with other people, no God, no work, no God. There's got to be work and self-sacrifice. Doesn't mean you can't have fun, have plenty of fun. But there are 112 waking hours a week and a lot of them go on on doing what needs to be done around me. So um, I'm going to stop there. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, over to you, Patrick. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Tim. Uh, so uh, just a quick announcement that we record everything, including the Q&A. So if you don't want your voice on the recording, which is shared on our WhatsApp groups, by the way, people have been asking. So there's a link to the WhatsApp group if you want to get the recording or if you don't want to join a WhatsApp group, just send me your info and I'll just indirect and chat either your number if you're on WhatsApp or your email address. And I'll get it to you. We'll be setting up breakout rooms. Vicky's in charge of those. So if you want to join a breakout room and uh, you want information on sponsorship and you're looking for a sponsor, you can just direct message Vicky. We have male and female breakout rooms, which we'll be setting up now. Vicky's in charge of that. And um, with the with the Q and A, just try to limit your questions to a minute or so, minute or two at the most, you know, so we can get as many in. And it's by raised hand or by direct message to Tim in chat. With that, I'll turn it back to Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, uh, Volcan. Would you like to come in with your question? Hello, um, thank you for your sharing, sir. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Volkan. I'm an alcoholic from Berlin, Germany. And um, my question to you is, sir, um, I, I wake up and I pray in the morning and I do feel spirituality and um, a, um, <clears throat> a connection to my higher power. But um, sometimes during the day, I, I start losing it, you know? Or like in, in, in difficult situations or when I, I don't know, when I have a discussion with my girlfriend, whatever, like in difficult situations, I sometimes kind of lose it during the day. But it's like in, in the morning, it's fine, you know, in the morning, I can super like feel it inside of me. But um, then during the day, um, sometimes I lose it. What can I do? What, what would you suggest to me? Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay, so, so the book is, is very, very helpful on this. You've got the bottom of page, eight, page 87, page 87 in the English version of the big book, um, where it says, when agitated or doubtful, we pray for the right thought or action. Uh, it's also got a couple of tools, middle of 84, we continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them and find something useful to get on with. And then page 85, it's where I, I say, right, God, and this is paraphrasing, putting it in my own language, but God, show me how I can contribute to this situation. What can I contribute here? Not what am I getting out, but what can I do for the people around me? 
And that immediately turns situations on a sixpence. It turns them around 180 degrees very quickly. The other thing I do, and I did it yesterday, it's very good to have those page a day meditation books. So uh, if you're in Al-Anon, there's uh, one day at a time in Al-Anon, courage to change, hope for today. If you go to your nearest bookshop, there are lots of meditation books with a page per day. If you do a course in miracles, you can take your lesson for the day. And what I do, I did it yesterday. I went and sat on the sofa over there in the office, um, uh, just in a quiet little pose. Um, I put on the insight timer, thick headphones to block everything out, uh, put on some meditation, you know, that kind of backgroundy meditation music. And I spent 15 minutes just thinking about my, the particular thought from the day from my meditation book and thought, I can sit here for as long as necessary until I feel ready to face the day. And again, and this was about around lunchtime. So you get to check out of the day as many times as you need to reconnect to the higher power. In the moment, if you can't check out because you're in a meeting or you're with other people, it's turning it around and saying, what can I bring to this situation? God work through me to contribute constructively in this situation. Or even if there's nothing you can say or do, you've got patience, tolerance, kindness and love. Those four words crop up again and again in the big book. And all I need to do is take one of those and mentally extend patience, tolerance, kindness, and love to the people who are with me. So there's always something that can be done. Even when I'm physically bound in a situation, I have to stay sat there with the people that I'm with. There is always something I can do. And one last thing that my sponsor suggests is you uh, extend in your mind and heart to the other people around you what appears to be lacking in them. So if, if someone seems very angry, the thing that they are lacking is peace and you mentally extend peace to them. If someone seems to be frightened, they're lacking faith and courage, you mentally extend faith and courage to them. Practicing that, you can never get bored of that. You can be on a train. You can look at people who are unhappy on a train. If you're on a train, people will look unhappy. That's what they've been told to do, apparently. And you extend happiness in your mind towards these people. It, it, does, it does very interesting things. Animals respond very well to this kind of treatment as well. I don't understand why, but they do. Um, Anyway, maybe we should have a session on animals in recovery and our relationships with them. So, um, Micah, uh, would you like to come in with your question? I would love to. Thanks, Tim. My God, you know, when you share, it sort of tickles me. You know, you sort of, you know, you hit the right spot. So it's really cool shit. Anyways, um, my question, short one. I got into, you, you were speaking about seven blocks, uh, you know, towards God. So, and I got to number five, complacency. And then somehow I got lost. And I would like to, please, could you tell me number six and seven? Yeah, so I think your, your, your numbering's off slightly. So it, it, it was number one, resentment. Uh, number two, harm towards others. Uh -huh. uh, number, number three, uh, not making amends, not making all the amends. Number four, yeah. not facing creditors. Uh, number five, see, the, so the number's all gone wrong in my mind now. Secrets, 
Sorry. Then complacency yeah. and then working with others. Oh, okay. Working understood. Yes, yes. Others. You're right. I, I probably skipped the, 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 the one with the creditors. That's probably the one that was missing. So I got all messed up. But nice. thanks. That's already nice. it. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks. Millie, would you like to come in? Millie, you'll have to unmute again. You are muted then, muted. Thanks, Tim. There you go. You're, um, there you go. Thanks. Tim, can you talk a little bit more about enlarging your spirit to work in self-sacrifice for others? To me, it's one of the fundamentals of the program, and I believe that many groups fail because members don't practice that, because members continue to come to a meeting looking at what can I get out of the meeting rather than what I can contribute. And so, you know, I look at the, the uh, for me personally, work and self-sacrifice for others does not, is not excluded or is not exclusive to how I conduct myself in the meetings because the program in the big book says this is a design for living that really works. So, you know, how do I, like, I, I just think that a, a lot of people, like you, you, you touched on it briefly in, in your presentation and your talk, and it was great, but I really think that there, I mean, we probably could do a whole session just on that, but there is a depth to it that I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, um, giving somebody the right away is, you know, is, is a way of giving service, giving somebody a smile, you know, talking to a stranger on a, on the bus or on a public transit who, you know, seems to have, seems to have a, a, a bad moment. Like, uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because, you know, in the big book was written in 1939. We all know that. So as a result, I think that the whole expression of work and self-sacrifice for others sounds incredibly noble and incredibly stressful and incredibly demanding, which really, uh, in the pure essence, it isn't. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's understood. Thank you. Um, so to, to answer that, um, uh, there is... If ever I'm, I need to review this in my life, there are seven areas that I can look at to say, am I pulling my weight? Now, what I can do in my life depends on where I am. Different people are equipped to do different things at different times. Uh, and that will become obvious in a moment. But the seven things are, first of all, home group service. It doesn't matter what it is, just, just do something for the home group that you belong to. Um, uh, one, some service assignment. If you go to a couple of groups, you can do service at a couple of groups. I know in lots of groups in America, the group will meet many, sometimes many times a week. Sometimes a group will have 30 or 40 uh, uh, meetings a week and people will therefore be able to do service several times a week. In the UK, meetings almost exclusively have only one meeting a week. Uh, and I don't think one's restricted, therefore, in the UK to, to having more than one, to having just one home group. Yeah, I think you can, you can do service at more than one group. It doesn't hurt. Um, home group service. Sponsorship. Now, a lot of sponsorship is formal. So you are someone's actual sponsor. So if someone says, who's your sponsor? They, you know, they'll, 
they'll say your name usually with gritted teeth, but they say it nonetheless. Uh, but but a lot of sponsorship is informal. So in, in any given week, I probably talk to more people who call me up who are not my sponsees than the ones who are. There's ones who are largely avoiding me for probably for very good reason. Um, so, so you can be sponsoring all sorts of people without it being called sponsorship. What is sponsorship? Um, um, what is it? Uh, S-P-O-N-S-O-R, sober person offering newcomers uh, suggestions on recovery. There you go. Uh, and that, that's, not, that's not bad. That means that anyone can do that as long as you're sober and you've done something in recovery, you can tell someone what you did. <laughs> there you go. It's not hard. Um, there... <laughs> There was a cartoon I saw, a, a, a drawing, cartoon drawing I saw on Facebook many years ago, um, where it was a picture of a giraffe drinking a cup of coffee. And the caption said, have you ever thought that when a giraffe drinks a cup of coffee, by the time the coffee reaches its stomach, the coffee is cold. Then it says below, of course you don't. You only ever think of yourself. And that's the problem is, you know, when I've got a problem, uh, when I feel bad, part of me says, you need to sit in a room on your own and think about yourself to fix it. You need to do inventory. That's the last thing you want to do is just analyze yourself. No. Go and think of someone else. Call five newcomers and call me back. Go and write, go onto the websites of 10 different charities and give each a hundred pounds and come back and tell me how you feel then. There you go. It's funny, people stop asking you for suggestions when you say things like that. I'll tell you that for nothing. If you want to get rid of people in AA, if you're getting too many calls, suggest they give money to charity rather than thinking about themselves. Your phone will be silent for weeks. Uh, anyway, back, so sponsorship. So what have we covered? We've covered um, home group sponsorship. There's, uh, each fellowship has a service structure. So I was involved in general service in AA um, for ooh, about 25 years. I'm taking a break from general service. I'm doing lots of other things at the moment. I've crept back into a group as, 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 a, as a greeter, but that's another element of service. And I, I worked all the way down to the general service board onto committees to the general service board in Great Britain. So I did that. Uh, there's then carrying the AA message to the outside world that can be done through the AA structure or in all sorts of other ways. The message can be carried. I know a friend. I've got a friend who uh, gets asked to talk a lot. He doesn't talk on behalf of AA. He doesn't mention AA, but he does mention the 12 steps. You can mention the 12 steps. In, pub, in public settings, as long as you don't say you're a member of AA. There are lots of non 12 step organizations that use the 12 steps. You're not betraying step uh, a tradition 11 by doing that. People find a thousand ways to carry the message to the outside world. So, those are the four kind of AA ish things to do sponsorship, group level service, service structure, carrying the message to the outside world. That can be, for instance, Ho um, I said hotels, hospitals, um, institutions, treatment centers, prisons, that sort of thing. 
And then work and self-sacrifice for others. Um, home, work, and community stroke society. So at home, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, when sponsees get to step 12, they say, can I start dating now? I want to, and immediately, you know, two weeks later, they downloaded Tinder or Grindr, and, and then they start cropping up at SLA meetings about three weeks later with a sort of newly, newly diagnosed sex addiction. Um, uh, someone said to me once, you want a relationship, do you? Your a relationship only has, your intimate relationship has two purposes, to forgive and to serve. If you feel you are lacking in opportunities to forgive people in your life because you're so at peace with everyone and you run out of useful things to do, then by all means, start dating, find someone to live with. Because I've been with someone for 18 years, what it boils down to is learning how to withdraw all judgment from their thousands of strange little ways and discovering that you, you live with someone, you end up doing a lot for them, otherwise there's gonna be, be arguments. Something's gonna go down. Um, forgive and serve. So I get to work and self-sacrifice, but now work doesn't have to be miserable. If work isn't fun, you're not doing it right. Work gets a very, very bad name. It just means constructive activity. If it hurt, it, it's like peeing. If it hurts, you're doing something. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> well, in the culture, work is this sort of terrible thing that you have to sort of get through. And I don't think I don't think that's right. I think one should. I, I think it can be done with the you can learn to work in a joyful, fun way. So work is not work anymore. And also self-sacrifice. The self that is being sacrificed is this evil goblin that keeps me trapped in my own mind. It, it's not, I'm not giving up anything bad, anything good. I'm, give, I'm giving up something bad. Um, I remember there was a, a woman on television many years ago uh, and she was on uh, Richard and Judy. British people will know what Richard and Judy is or was. I imagine it's no longer still on. But they used to ask people really stupid questions. Anyway, this famous woman who was sober by that point, sober a few years, they said, what do you do now you don't drink? I mean, this stupid thing. What do you do now you don't drink? And she said, everything, everything but drink. Um, so from the addict point of view, tell an addict or an alcoholic like me who can't do one thing, one thing, and I feel like I've been put in prison, but the one thing I've been told not to do, which is drink, which is drink was the prison. So being released from prison feels like I'm being put in prison. Everything is backwards. Everything is backwards from the truth. Um, and then in, in the community and society, I have gone through phases of doing things there. Uh, I don't give time so much in that area, but I give money and I treat my, my job, my sort of day job, if there's extra money, it goes into causes I think are good. Other people have got time to give. Uh, but with, with giving either time or money, um, the tip I was given by a friend of mine from, from Torrance, California, was uh, you've got to give enough that it hurts and you notice it. 
if it doesn't hurt a little bit, if you don't notice it, oh, you don't want to watch out. Now, of course, it only hurts for a moment because there's the glow that comes afterwards. The, the, the basic sense of, I don't care what happens in my life, I'm satisfied with how I'm living. Uh, it talks about the most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. It doesn't say the most comfortable. And I thought recovery was about seeking comfort and seeking excitement. And it's not. It's about living a life that I can look back at and say, that's not how I've handled this is not half bad. I've done a few things which I think are worthwhile. Um, Siona, or Shiona, would you like to come in with your question? Yes, please. I hope my audio is okay. Um, I was wondering if your concept of God or a higher power has changed during your recovery. And if so, um, how was it in the very beginning compared to now? Okay, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, I think when I first developed a concept of a higher power, it was basically a lack of concept. It is that which can be contacted. It is that which is the source of strength, direction, and inspiration. Frankly, it's still that today. I think the basic idea about the higher power is it can't be understood. You can have academic discussions and theological discussions, and those are, are of interest to the academically and theologically minded. But I don't think they have anything to do with my business as an AA member. Um, Tom tells a very good story about a, a, a woman in AA that had trouble with the whole notion of a higher power. And for the first year of her recovery, uh, she didn't have one. She was, well, I haven't understood this higher power. And when she was vacuuming at about a year sober, she was vacuuming in her living room around this green armchair. And the green armchair was the chair that she drank in. And she lived in, in fact, for the last few years of her drinking. Her whole time was spent in the green armchair, watching television and drinking. And she realized that she hadn't sat in the green armchair since she'd been sober. And she now developed a conception of a higher power that the higher power is that which keeps me out of the green armchair. <laughs> That's it. It doesn't need to be fancier than that. Anthony DeMello is very good on this. If you want to talk about conceptions of a higher power, or rather be disabused of the notion that you have to have one and it has to make sense, read The Song of the Bird, The Song of the Bird by Anthony DeMello. There's a story in there about ants and about what the higher, the god of the ants look like. And it talks about these theologian ants who have these very erudite discussions about what their god looks like. And they all agree that, um, the, that, that, that the ant god is like them, but bigger. And the main point of contention between them is whether the, 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 the god ant actually still has a sting or not. And that's very similar to, you know, human conceptions of God tend to be based, in my experience, on human beings. Um, Voltaire said, uh, man made God in his own image, and man has more than returned the favor. 
Very good. So I don't worry about conceptions of God. Any conception I have is necessarily going to be horribly inadequate. This is St. Augustine or Augustine, depending on whether you're Catholic or Protestant, um, story about where he's walking along a beach. I think it may have been a dream in the confessions, but it, I think it's in the confessions this, where he's walking along a beach. I'm sure you know this story, many of you. He's walking along a beach and he sees this child um, uh, with a bucket and a hole in a hole in the beach. He's dug this little hole in the beach, and he's running back and forth between the ocean and the hole. And what he does, he takes the bucket, scoops up some water, runs to the hole, and pours the water into the hole, and then runs back. And he keeps going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And Saint Augustine. Um, says to him, what are you doing, you stupid child? And uh, the child says, I'm trying to get the ocean, I'm trying to pour the ocean into the hole in the beach. And Augustine says, oh, you stupid child. The ocean is very, very big. And the hole you've dug is very, very small. What a ridiculous thing to try and do. And uh, the little child who Augustine then realizes is actually Jesus says something to the effect of no sillier than trying to capture God in your tiny little mind. Um, and that's the point. Whatever I come up with is going to be so risibly inadequate. Oh, I don't bother. I, I think I can. Earl Purdy. P-U-R-D-Y. Earl Purdy is very, I find very useful. Um, Course in Miracles teaching, he says, your understanding is not a valuable contribution to the truth. If I understand something, it doesn't make it truer. <laughs> so God can be there and function perfectly adequately in my life without any conception whatsoever. Um, so that's that's how I handle that question is I don't even address it. Eric, would you like to come in with your question? I want to, I'll try to be as quick as I can. Uh, thank you, Tim. That was really very enlightening today. Um, you speak a lot about action or almost exclusively about action. Um, the monastery example, right? When it was left to God, it wasn't so great. And then when a human being took care of it with love, it, it, it looked graceful. How much of the action do you find requires your willpower and discipline and how much of it comes intuitively? How much resistance, I guess? That's a good question. Um, there, frankly, there is a huge amount of resistance. There has been in the past a huge amount of resistance. I remember when I first got a job sober i was about a year oh i worked in little jobs but i got a kind of a job job a proper a proper job something more than temporary when i was about a year sober and i was on the first day um my hours were notionally 9 30 to 5 30 and it got to 5 30 and i looked around and everyone no one was moving and the horrible thought dawned on me oh my god these people they're going to work they're going to stay after. Why are they staying? Why aren't they going home? Why aren't they putting their coats on? None of them seemed to be even aware that it was 5.30. And it, 
5.40 and 5.50. And the time went on about 6.15. A couple of them started looking at their watches. And, and I was, I don't think I've ever been so depressed in my life as realizing that some people actually have to work until quarter past six in the evening. Couldn't I felt so hard done by, so short-changed by the world. Mark Twain, I think, said, uh, the world doesn't owe you anything. It was here first. So gradually <laughs> over the years, um, the resistance has worn down. And frankly, I found that uh, I've realized now my bread is buttered on the side of being vigorously active in life. And that is the thing which has brought the happiness which so eluded me when I was drinking and so eluded me in my early recovery, where I really thought I just need to think very intensively the right thoughts and then I will be okay. Um, and I think it's well said that you act your way into right thinking rather than thinking your way into right action. If I take the right, if I force myself to take the right action, even if I don't feel like it, often within five minutes, I start to feel better. It starts to give. The resistance starts to give. But it, it takes, it just a little bit of spurt where I say, God, I'm going to do this just to help me do it. But the initiative has to come from me and the decision has to come from me. And let's make a distinction at this point. This is so important for step six the distinction between wanting and being willing. Uh, wanting to do something is being so, sort of emotionally attracted to the idea. Being willing to do something is being prepared to do it regardless of what I feel about it or what I think about it. And um, uh, there was an old AA member in East London called Billy who said, commitment is what remains when the emotion which prompted the decision fades. So you make a decision based on lots of wonderful sentiments and good intentions and feeling, but that emotion is gonna fade. You need something which is called commitment, which means that you stick with the decision until it's natural conclusion, even though all of the emotion has now trickled away, you're just left with the tasks in front of you. But I've got freedom from losing myself in action. And then you find out who you really are in action. You know, I don't find out who I am by thinking about myself. I find out by engaging in the world. And I think on that point, it's just hitting 7.30. So I'm going to turn the recording off. Just give me a moment.